Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's February 2023. In this month's issue of Itchy, we publish several papers that address diagnostic stewardship, and I'm thrilled to have authors of four of these papers join us today. Here in our virtual studio are Dr. Katie Shotis from the Division of Critical Care Medicine and Anesthesiology and the Center for Pediatric Clinical Effectiveness at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Katya Halabi, a pediatric infectious disease physician and hospital epidemiologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Bobby Warren, the laboratory director of the Disinfection, Resistance, and Transmission Epidemiology Lab at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And Dr. Dan Morgan, a professor of epidemiology and public health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and the director of the Center for Innovation and Diagnosis and the chief of epidemiology at the VA Maryland Healthcare System in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you all for joining us. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So before we get into a discussion of the papers that describe specific diagnostic stewardship initiatives and research, I want to take a step back to spend some time talking about diagnostic stewardship in general, because it may be a topic or at least terminology with which some of our readers may not be familiar. So Dan, I know that diagnostic stewardship is something that you've been thinking about for quite a while now. And in this month's issue of Itchy, you and other members of Shea's Diagnostic Stewardship Task Force published a paper on the principles of diagnostic stewardship, which I think serves as a good introduction to the topic and a summary of some of the key concepts, targets, and strategies for diagnostic stewardship work. So I'm hoping you can help provide an overview of this field as we get started. So I'm going to start off just by asking you, what is diagnostic stewardship? All right, great. Well, great to be here and glad you're covering this topic, which which I find incredibly interesting and, and I think important also. So part of the goal of the Shea Task Force that started uh, about a year and a half ago was to really better define what diagnostic stewardship was, knowing that the term is used a lot, but what it means was not always clear. And so the definitions that we include in this principles paper, which will be an itchy this month, is that it's the process of modifying the ordering, performing, or reporting of diagnostic tests to improve the diagnosis of and treatment of infections and other conditions. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but another way of saying that is the right test for the right patient to prompt the right action. Perfect. So why is it thought, or what do we know about diagnostic stewardship and how it can lead to better patient care and better patient outcomes? Still, I think, you know, there's a lot of data that's needed for exactly the full impact of different types of diagnostic stewardship on different patient populations. But for a long time, clinical microbiologists have you know, been aware of the limitations of tests and needing to use tests appropriately to really get the maximum benefit for patients with them. And a lot of diagnostic stewardship is sort of building upon what clinical microbiologists have been trying to tell people for a long time and, and make it more of a clinical interest so to speak to clinicians and to try to build it more into the systems is kind of hardwired so that it doesn't require education and just kind of clinician thinking to get through it. Great. And I have to say, when I first heard the term diagnostic stewardship a few years ago, I was reminded of the Choosing Wisely campaigns that now date back, I guess, more than 10 years ago that various professional societies are participating in, and where they identify tests and procedures in their specialty that may not be needed and that should be thoughtfully considered in order to reduce unnecessary healthcare costs and interventions. 
But if I'm understanding you correctly, diagnostic stewardship addresses that issue, but it really is a lot more broad than that. And it also helps or tries to help clinicians decide when a test is appropriate and then to optimize the diagnostic and clinical value of these tests if they are indeed ordered. Is that one way to think about diagnostic stewardship? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think choosing wisely has been a great initiative, but it really was the tip of the iceberg. And it was really trying to say, like, if there's five things your profession does that they shouldn't do, identify those five things. And I think it was great for demonstrating that there are problems of both underuse and overuse in healthcare, and that there are some really simple forms of it that we can identify in, in choosing wisely. Diagnostic stewardship, I think, is related that a lot of the interest in it grew out of trying to limit unnecessary medical care and, you know, and then inappropriate antibiotics is kind of the outcome of that. But I think it's a little bit more just focus on the diagnosis generally and, and providing better care. So there are aspects of diagnostic stewardship that would involve doing more tests, like say potentially in some situations, rapid testing that would provide a diagnosis more accurately and more quickly. So it's not really, I guess, from a philosophical view of always doing less, but it's trying to make more precise and more, more appropriate diagnoses and really being focused on what's the outcome to patients. How can we improve patient care, not just limit diagnoses or limit antibiotics? So what are some of the key concepts and factors that should be considered in diagnostic stewardship work? We thought a lot about this for the principles paper that I would encourage people to read because I think it has a lot of interesting content. And I think people are still trying to figure out exactly what are the clear points that are they're part of all diagnostic stewardship interventions. And I think they vary a bit depending on what people are doing. If they're trying to limit inappropriate testing for patients with sepsis versus preventing unnecessary antibiotics for urinary tract infection. So I think some of the general concepts are that it's, it's not about just test ordering, but really the entire process of diagnosis. And so it's not just ordering the test, but how you think about diagnosing a patient and then how the order tests and then how tests are performed in the lab and then how tests are reported. So it's, it's a bigger process than I think some have defined it as, which was really just about what test you order. I think a lot of it has been about focusing on what you can build into the system. So rather than trying just to educate people and get them to be better doctors, it's how do you, can you make the system more straightforward so that better decisions are made? And a lot of that is changing the way the electronic health record works or the lab processes work so that there's less room for variation and need for expertise. And then I'd say the last part that we're still figuring out how to do, and I think it's a real challenge, is, is how to improve the clinician cognitive process. How do we get clinicians to think better about probability and using it for better diagnosis and decisions? And I've spent a lot of time trying to think of ways to do this and you know, built a website, testingwisely.com. But a lot of it is uh, still, I think, a work in progress of how do you get clinicians to think about diagnosis is not a kind of a black-white process, but one based on probability. That's great. And I, when reading the paper, I noticed you brought up topics or concepts of mental models and local context a number of times. And it's interesting, those two things keep coming up in a lot of episodes of the Itchy podcast. We talked about it when we were talking about implementation science and others where we're talking about changing behavior or modifying behavior. So it's kind of interesting that these concepts keep coming up and are so relevant in, in so much of the work we do in healthcare epidemiology and antimicrobial stewardship and diagnostic stewardship. So what are some of the common strategies and interventions that people use in diagnostic stewardship work? You alluded a little bit to using the electronic ordering system or the electronic medical record, but are these kind of specific things that are commonly done? 
But yeah, I'll probably give just a little bit of kind of a broad overview of that. And I know that Katia has a good paper talking about some of the C. diff examples, which I think C. diff is probably the most developed part of diagnostic stewardship in some ways. But yes, yeah, it's, it's generally trying to change the way that tests are ordered. And so given we almost always use the electronic health record to order tests, it's modifying the way that clinicians have access to tests. And if tests are just available to be ordered whenever you want, or if, if they require, say, entering indications for urine culture, or say like with C. diff, checking to see if a patient is on a laxative and having a hard or soft stop to that test ordering. The next step is the lab step, which is very different from test to test as far as what you can do. But one of the common approaches, say for urine cultures, has been a practice, which I think the terminology has been problematic because it's hard to say what you mean exactly. But the idea that you can only get a urine culture if a patient has pyuria, which is often referred to as reflex urine culturing or conditional urine culturing. And then finally, changing the way we report tests back so that, say, if you get a bacterial culture back, there can be nudges or framing to help people interpret what it means. And so like a great example is a urine culture that comes back that says greater than three organisms likely indicates contamination. That's something that clinical microbiologists have been doing forever, but that's one of the most effective forms of feedback that like nobody ends up treating that versus if you said Pseudomonas E. coli and Staph aureus, people would say, oh my gosh, we need, you know, daptomycin and meropenem. So the way that you report the information can really shape how people interpret it. And so trying to think more about that, which I think is still a moving target for a lot of the tests we use. Great. Well, thanks, Dan. That was a really helpful background to get us started in our discussion of the other papers that we're going to speak about today. So Katya, I think this is really a good time to transition to a discussion of your paper, which describes a, I think, very successful diagnostic stewardship intervention and illustrates how some of the concepts and strategies that Dan described can be successfully used in clinical practice. So maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit about what aspect of diagnostic testing or diagnostic stewardship did your work address? Yeah, so very much we wanted to implement exactly what Daniel has been talking about, and particularly with CDF. And we do know that as many institutions struggle with that, and in particular in pediatric population, there is inappropriate testing. And we wanted to align that with the IDSA and SHEA guidelines from 2017. So looking at our testing, we know that there were a lot of inappropriate testing being done, and we knew that there is misdiagnosis, overuse of antibiotics. Subsequently, that's also causing a lot of costs and impacting one of our hospital metrics, which is the healthcare onset CDI. So here is exactly what we did, what was mentioned about using the electronic medical record in order to give alerts. Initially, we did give sort of a soft stop where an alert would be popping up for the clinician ordering the test and saying that avoid testing in infants, avoid testing if patients are on laxatives or enemas or stool softeners. But the clinician could still order that and bypass that alert. And then subsequently, we restricted more and implemented the age restriction testing in which infants or children that are less than one year of age could not get tested. And that aligns with the IDSA guidelines as well. And then older kids from 13 to 23 months that we know it's not routinely recommended to test would require approval from the ID team in order to be able to test. And then children that are older than two can get tested, but if they have been on any sort of laxatives and enemas would still need approval by the pathology residents. So we kind of used a lot of 
approaches to address the diagnostic stewardship, whether it's alert, whether it's going through a medical team, in addition to working with our microbiology colleagues and emphasizing that if the stools are formed, we wouldn't approve the testing procedure. And so just to make sure I understand this correctly, the ordering process would would pull patient-specific information about that individual patient when they went to order a C. diff test. So they would get a an alert specific to that patient. It wasn't just one of those kind of random things or those things that shows up for every patient saying these are not indications for C. diff, but it was really based on what was known about that patient, whether they were having laxatives or based on their age. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Great. So how did you assess the impact of your intervention? And then what did you find? Yeah, so we looked at our numbers. First, we looked at the total number of tests ordered, the total number of tests that were actually sent, because sometimes they put the order and the stools are never collected because patients stopped having diarrhea. And then subsequently, the total number of C. diffs that are positive and in particularly the healthcare onset CDIs. And we looked at our numbers pre-intervention and post-intervention. And we did find that our monthly number of tests that were ordered and samples that were subsequently sent actually decreased after the intervention in all the age groups. And we did the categorization similar to the what we did less than 12, 13 to 23, and older than 24 months. We also noticed that the median number of positive C. diff tests decreased, and particularly in the age group between 13 and 23 months. And this is where it's controversial because you can get sick kids and there are risk factors and they potentially could have C. diff. But even with that and going through the approval, we did notice that there was a decrease. And again, one of the important hospital metrics, which is the healthcare onset CDI, also decreased in that age group and in addition to the old combined age groups. So we did see an improvement in addition to the standardized infection ratio did go down as well in one of our hospitals. So altogether, we did see that it made a difference. Great. And I think it's also important to note that you'd also looked at a number of balancing measures to make sure that no harm was being done as a result of this. And can you tell us a little bit about what you looked at for that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So to make sure that we're not missing any diagnosis, we looked if there were any cases of C. diff that required hospitalization after being in the hospital. So did we miss sending that test? Did we have complications such as toxic megacolon, nematosis, requiring surgery, or even outbreaks within the institution to see if we had missed a, you know, a testing and subsequently isolation? And we did not have any in that case. Fantastic. So it definitely sounds like a very successful intervention. And of course, initiatives like this don't always work or they don't work quite like we had hoped that they would. And we then want to understand why that was the case. Or maybe we want to better understand current local drivers of test ordering and other aspects of the local context, even before we embark on a new project. So Katie, I'd like to turn to you now and your study and talk about the role of evaluating current diagnostic practices and identifying potential barriers to diagnostic stewardship interventions. And so in your paper, you describe the findings of a mixed methods process evaluation of a respiratory culture diagnostic stewardship intervention. So first of all, I guess maybe I'd be interested to hear what led you to pursue a diagnostic stewardship intervention focused on respiratory cultures. 
Yeah, really, I practice clinically in the pediatric ICU, do a lot of work with antimicrobial stewardship, and then also do some work with ID. And so my day-to-day experience often involves uh, interpretation of a respiratory culture that's positive for something and trying to decide whether or not that represents a true bacterial infection that would benefit from antibiotics. I see Dan is smiling, and I think probably he can identify with these conversations that can sometimes feel a little bit challenging because this culture comes back three days later. You don't fully know what was going on at the time. The kid seems like they've gotten a little bit better. And so the clinician has talked themselves into the fact that the kid has some antibiotic responsive respiratory tract process and therefore wants to continue antibiotics in part driven by the fact that they've got this culture that's come back positive and aha, there must be a bacterial infection there. So I think this is really right for a diagnostic test stewardship intervention, because I think we send a lot of cultures that don't necessarily guide us towards doing the best thing and can at times actually cause us to turn into a diagnosis that we otherwise may not have and expose kids to therapies like antibiotics and other things that are not beneficial in that situation. So I think really that day-to-day experience really led me to want to address this question. Yeah, I definitely think our day-to-day experience drive some of the best research because we have that personal investment in it. But the study that you published in Itchy this month was a mixed methods process evaluation conducted concurrently, I believe, with your diagnostic stewardship intervention. And so I know that the stewardship intervention itself isn't really the focus of your paper, but to set the stage a little bit, can you tell us briefly about what that intervention was? Yeah, so we essentially developed a consensus-based local guideline with input from our ICU clinicians, ID, microbiology lab, and pulmonology group to try to come up with some clinical scenarios where we thought that respiratory cultures should and should not be sent. And sort of segueing a little bit into some of the content that was published in this paper, one of the really important things that we did was spend a lot of time reviewing all the cultures that had been sent so that we could really understand those clinical scenarios and where we really wanted to focus that guideline because it was important to us to make it as pragmatic at the point of care as was possible. So developed a guideline and then essentially implemented it through order set linkages, as well as clinician education, serial reminders with emails, and sharing data for kind of group level audit and feedback as to how we were doing on the rate of respiratory culture collection over time. We also adjudicated whether or not the cultures were sent in compliance or not in compliance with the recommendations that were published in the guideline and were able to share that with our clinicians as well over the course of the project. And we did successfully reduce the frequency of respiratory culture collection in that other study, although that wasn't the focus of this paper. Great. So what made you do this component of the study, the, the process evaluation? What was the impetus to conduct that part of the work? Yeah, I think Dan alluded a little bit to this in his introduction that some of what we're trying to modify here is clinician behavior. And in order to really modify behavior, I think we needed to understand why the behavior was happening and what was really prompting people to send these cultures. All right. So let's talk about that. So how did you make those assessments and, and try to understand those thought processes? 
Yeah, so we did a mixed method study and really tried to utilize both quantitative and qualitative methods to understand that as well as we could. So I alluded already to one of our really quantitative assessments, which was to review all the cultures that had been collected in the preceding year to understand the scenarios where they were being collected. We also were able to quantify use by attending physician, so seeing the rates by the lowest utilizers and the highest utilizers. And of course, we had a huge variety from about two cultures per 100 vent days to 27 cultures per 100 vent days. So more than a tenfold variation across clinicians within our unit, which really spoke to the fact that there was really a total lack of standardization. So we used that data to then sample those clinicians, both at the high end of the utilization spectrum and those at the low end, to try to understand what makes people send these cultures. And because we were doing this concurrently with our diagnostics test stewardship intervention, how they perceived the guideline and its implementation as well. And so we used semi-structured interviews conducted by people with a great deal of experience in that methodology to ask a series of structured questions and allowed people to, to respond freely to those. We also sampled some of our nurse practitioners and trainees just to get a spectrum of clinician perspectives. And then finally, after we did those first two things, and towards the end of our intervention, we used some of the themes and things that we noticed through our quantitative methods to develop a survey that we deployed to a larger group of people, both in the PICU, as well as nursing staff, respiratory therapy, infectious disease, and pulmonary, and really just thought to really explore the themes that we had noticed in both our qualitative interviews and then over time as we were assessing why these cultures were being sent both appropriately and, and inappropriately. And so these three kind of approaches, we kind of then tried to triangulate them to come up with the key themes that we shared in the paper. An amazing amount of work <laughs> whenever you think about like these qualitative studies and it often interesting, the range of things that are identified, but always a lot of work to actually get it to like the light of day as a written manuscript. Yeah. So maybe you can spend just a couple minutes telling us about what some of the key findings were that perhaps you benefited from in your in your work and that perhaps the rest of us could benefit from if we're embarking on similar work. Yeah, so I think, you know, first and foremost, and not to state the obvious, but there was quite a bit of variability. And in addition to demonstrating that, I think people felt that in their own kind of day-to-day -day practice that this attending wants me to do X and that attending wants me to do Y. And that variability was really felt by our frontline care providers. And then sort of Related to that, I think that really unit culture or perceived unit culture really influenced sort of the etiquette around testing for respiratory culture. So for example, respiratory cultures were often set as sort of a default in response to fever or some other relatively minor clinical change that may not really support a diagnosis of pneumonia. There was also cultures that were sent really because they felt as though they would be expected by an attending or a consulting service. And so notably, neither of those things have anything to do really with the patient and your suspicion for pneumonia. It's really sort of like, oh, okay, X happened, so I must do why or so-and-so is on, so I better get this culture. And I think that really sort of stems from maybe a culture of hierarchy, a little bit of fear, not wanting to miss something. And so I think undoing that culture is hard work and requires sort of a mental frame shift for people. And so, yes, you can do clinical decision support things and try to implement EHR, but, but cultural changes, I think, are a little bit more difficult. And I think in our case, really required um, the buy-in of our attending staff. And then the last thing that we learned is that, and this really didn't come as any great surprise, but that there was some 
trepidation around standardization in a complicated patient population like the one we serve here in the ICU, that that maybe not sending this culture would down the line lead to some untoward consequence that would be potentially catastrophic for that patient. And, and really that, that concern is not very well founded because sending the culture itself really doesn't directly result in any therapeutic benefit for the patient, whether you send it or you don't send it, the patient's still getting the same therapy. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of overstated fear. And I think that gets back to just this culture of doing reflexively and doing more and doing more that we have in the ICU that can be challenging to undo, but really came out as a, as a prominent theme. Yeah, I think this is just a great illustration of how those mental constructs in the local context really does influence diagnostic testing and the potential importance of understanding these factors when we're designing our stewardship intervention. So thanks for doing that. As Dan mentioned, very difficult work and for sharing it with all of us. So I think another important aspect of diagnostic stewardship and really any other quality improvement initiative that is not commonly discussed is the identification or prioritization of opportunities for intervention. So there are a lot of diagnostic tests used in the diagnosis of infectious diseases and several different places along the diagnostic pathway where we could potentially intervene for each of these tests. But we obviously can't realistically address all of them, certainly at least not all at once. And as probably came, I think it's probably true somewhat in your study, Katie, um, that diagnostic stewardship opportunities and appropriate interventions probably differ among different healthcare facilities and different units based on practices and culture. So Bobby, I'm thrilled to have you here today to talk about your work because I think the paper that you and your colleagues published in this month's issue provide a nice example of an assessment that was conducted to help identify hospital and even unit specific opportunities for diagnostic stewardship related to blood cultures. So What was it or or why did you decide to focus on blood cultures in particular? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for for having me, David. So we decided to focus on blood cultures strictly as just we had the opportunity to. So we actually used a database for a previous study called the Detours Trial that already had a large collection of blood culture data from several hospitals, both you know large, small, academic, et cetera. So that was our large motivator there because the Detours Trial was based on de-escalation of antibiotics for sepsis. And we noticed you know a lot of anecdotal things amongst that trial and then realized at the end that we didn't really have a lot to compare to as to what was normal, what was not normal. What I mean by that is there's Prior to this paper, there's no real publishings of benchmarks for blood culture utilization. They're mostly survey-based expert opinion when we found in our lit review. So it's really hard to know what's what's the right level of blood culture use. So with that database and that mindset and also trying to get a, a better mindset for our detours trials results, we decided to evaluate and compare blood culture utilization across different hospital types, sizes, geographical locations to hopefully uncover some potential untapped opportunities for diagnostic stewardship. Great. And so can you tell us about that comparison that you did, kind of what data you, what type of data you looked at to make that comparison? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, we used an existing database of blood culture data that we had both from the Detours trial, and then we also have this outreach network called the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network. And we reviewed over the course of 12 concurrent months at six different hospitals, both inpatient and emergency department encounters from May of 2019 to April of, of 2020. And we actually used two metrics. One is more typical and expected in the literature. One is kind of when we created ourselves. So the first is what we call the blood culture metric, which was defined 
find is total blood cultures ordered per 1,000 patient days. And then we created another called the blood culture event metric, defined the same way per 1,000 patient days. However, we defined a blood culture event as an initial blood culture and then all subsequent blood culture within 12 hours. Uh, and our intention here was to account for paired culture practices and not penalize those hospitals for doing so. And we had these metrics, we analyzed them overall by hospital, unit type, positivity, contamination rates. As I'm sure you could imagine there's tons of ways we, we can slice and dice this. Right, and so what did you find? Yeah, so broadly, over the over the course of those 12 months in those six hospitals, we had over 100,000 blood culture sets and 50,000 blood culture events, our, our, our new little definition there. Kind of looking at both metrics, the blood culture utilization rate with the culture metric was roughly 196 blood culture per 1,000 patient days. And between hospitals, it actually ranged greatly from 166 to 539. And then using our blood culture event metric, it was 92, excuse me, events per 1,000 patient days. And that only ranged from 64 to 155. And overall, just, you know, putting it all in one bucket, looking at it from way bird's eye view, some notable findings were that 7% of all blood culture events were actually single culture events, which we thought was rather high. And then 55% of blood culture events actually began in the emergency department. And just under 6% of initial blood culture sets were actually taken after the initiation of antibiotics. Diving a little bit deeper at the hospital comparison level, again, because our, our big goal here was to compare and contrast. It varied widely between hospitals, as I said below. However, there was less extreme variation with the blood culture event metric. And at one specific hospital, it was significantly lower due to their high use of paired culture sets, which is a recommended practice, of course. So in other words, the typical culture metric that we've been using in the literature punished that hospital for appropriately using a recommended course of action. And then contamination rates and single culture sets also vary greatly between hospitals. 1.3 to 3.2% for contamination and 2 to 12% for single culture sets. And then a little bit deeper again. So at the unit comparison level, we found that the highest blood culture utilization rate, and some of this may just come out as like, duh, but we hadn't done it before, so we wanted to know. But the highest blood culture utilization rates with both metrics uh, occurred in intensive care units, followed by oncology and transplant units. And then the highest contamination rates were actually from cultures drawn in the emergency department. So out of all the blood cultures drawn, only 2.8% of those were contaminated in the emergency department. But if you take all of the contamination blood culture events, put them in a bucket, 77% of those were actually from the emergency department. So overall, blood culture rates by hospital were higher in hospitals with more active or high volume emergency departments with tracks with what we just found. Single culture events were obviously high in oncology and hematology units. So 24% of all blood culture events in that one unit were single culture events. So we also did a time-based analysis because, again, this was kind of spurred from our detours trial. And we just noticed anecdotally, like screening for that trial, that wow, there's a lot of blood cultures on Mondays and not so much on the weekend. So we decided just to pull that out and see what that looked like. And we actually did find a, a, a lot higher number of blood cultures on Mondays and on the weekend. However, when we pull the ED out of the situation, it goes right back to normal and it's kind of flatlined throughout the day. So that was driven by the emergency department. Uh, looking at your paper, what's up with Hospital C? <laughs> yeah, I believe, if I remember correctly, Hospital C is the one that was punished basically by every culture was a paired culture. So if you just smack them with the, you know, raw blood cultures over patient days, it looks crazy, right? But then if you actually account for them appropriately doing paired cultures, then they kind of come back down to earth. Yeah, it's interesting. The way you look at the data really gives you different views of what 
the practice is. Have any changes been made in these facilities based on these data, or is there any thought into interventions that might be appropriate based on these data, or is it still in the early phases of considering interventions? That's a good question. I would say it's somewhere in the middle. So no action items have been created or started as of yet, but we all kind of had this one large takeaway that it looks like the emergency department is a really lucrative opportunity. 77% of all contaminated cultures in the entire study came from the emergency department. And then hospitals with higher contamination rates also had higher traffic in their emergency department. So taking away one action item for us, that's the one we've all been kind of thinking about. Because you can, with this much data, you can change it and look at it different ways. You're going to find different trends all over the place and and not necessarily know what they mean, but that one was pretty consistent across the board. The contamination in the ED was very high. I think this is just a great example of how diagnostic stewardship probably really isn't a one-size-fits-all process and how understanding local data can really help you target and streamline your interventions to the places where they're most needed and and perhaps most likely to be effective. So thank you all for talking about your research today. It's always interesting to hear people talk about and discuss their work, but my hope with the podcast, in addition to to having an interesting conversation, is also to give listeners something concrete that they can take away from the podcast with each episode and use in their own work immediately. And so with that in mind, based on your own experiences, I'm going to ask each of you to give one or two brief tips to those of us who are new to diagnostic stewardship, but who are interested in initiating a diagnostic stewardship program or project within our own facilities. So I'll go in reverse order this time, maybe. So Bobby, I'll ask you a tip or two for the rest of us. Yeah. With the idea of having an immediate action item that's large bang for your buck, I would just repeat what I previously said, and that's review blood culture collection practices in your emergency department. Great. Love it. How about you, Katya? I think one thing that I learned was that it's a multidisciplinary approach to do any diagnostic stewardship and is to find collaborators or liaisons within different departments that can assist in this making it successful is one thing. And the other thing that I found very important was education, is that no matter how many alerts we put up in the medical record, it was actually those didactics and huddles that we did with the teams and they understood the reasoning behind doing those things and they were very appreciative. So I guess those two are my tips. Great. Katie. Yeah, I really agree with everything that's been said so far. I think pick something that you can measure and to start something that there's buy-in for, either because it's you know perceived as low-hanging fruit, unlikely to cause harm, and get that implemented. And then from there you can you can start moving into the more controversial things. Fantastic. And Dan, get the last word. All right. Well, I certainly encourage people to to look at the paper, the uh, Principles of Diagnostic Stewardship paper, and note that the task force has three other papers that are in various stages of completion, trying to look at the relationship between HAI reporting and diagnostic stewardship, the relationship between uh, antimicrobial stewardship and diagnostic stewardship, and then how we did with diagnostic stewardship during the COVID-19 pandemic and lessons that can be learned from that. But I mean, I think for people who are just considering diagnostic stewardship, I would just really encourage people to sort of do what has been talked about here, to think about the test that seems to cause the biggest problem, whether that be urine cultures, C. diff testing, COVID screening, whatever it is. 
And to try to think about like why that is a problem, make a simple case for being a problem and think about how you could make it better. I think a lot of what we do is to avoid HEI metrics, which is not a purely bad driver, but try to think about what makes the most impact on patients in your facility. And and I think that's always the most rewarding type of target to go for. Great. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end the podcast this month. So I want to thank all of you one more time for spending the day with us, talking about your knowledge and experience. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.